Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to That Anthro Podcast. It's been a couple weeks, but, um, you know, I really took the time during um, the winter break and being of the new year to relax and to reach out to new guests, but also to start school up. And I started back at my job um, in the new year. So that has been been able to work that into my schedule. Um, in case anyone was curious, I am taking prehistory of food production this quarter along with peoples of the ice age and medical anthropology. Uh, thus far, medical anthropology is it's kind of a new subject for me. You wouldn't necessarily think that if some of you kind of know my background, but it's really like an ethnographic cultural approach to medical anthropology and examining various medical systems and like for example this week we learned about um, stigma and how illness is culturally defined and the sick role so it's been really really fascinating especially to take the class during a global pandemic Um, overall I'm really really so thankful to have such amazing professors in the anth department because they have been going above and beyond you know to to give us the same quality of education that we would be getting if we were in the classroom so I really really commend my professors for putting in so much effort and obviously the TAs and the other faculty members and technicians behind the scenes all of it has really been a great experience so definitely thankful to be part of such a wonderful and supportive supportive department that really understands we are you know students are dealing with hardship right now so um for this week's episode we have one of those amazing UCSB professors on here which is Dr. David Lawson now I mean I just couldn't have asked for a more well-spoken just awesome person to interview and talk with. This was our first time meeting, so I was really glad to make another connection with someone on campus. And you know, I always tell my guests that I haven't met before until I've interviewed them. You know, I look forward to meeting you one day in person on campus. So really exciting to, you know, be able to continue to build my well, not just my, our anthropology community here on that anthro podcast and connect 
both myself as the interviewer and you guys as the listeners with these amazing people that are producing really fascinating research. So, um, you know, Dr. Lawson today dives into all sorts of things. We dive into child marriage, his work on it in Tanzania, you know, what it really means, why there are some kind of misconceptions of thinking about child brides. But we also really touch on topics like what it was like to grow up in Northern Ireland and what his experiences were like pursuing higher education in the UK. Because most of the people I've had on have been um, American-based. For in case anyone doesn't know, this podcast is based out of Santa Barbara, California. So I was really excited to hear his perspective. He's also the graduate advisor for UC Santa Barbara. So hearing that real perspective about, you know, the differences in PhDs and masters and teaching styles um, in the UK I think it was really great to hear from and so without further ado I'm not going to spoil any more of the episode this is a wonderful one you want to wait till the end because uh, at the end we talk about diversity and inclusion as a gay man in science so please without further ado enjoy the episode with Dr. David Lawson. Lawson, welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for having me. I love the podcast. You're doing a great job. Yes, it's really exciting because you are a true fan and you reached out to me. So that's kind of cool. I think you're the first (laughs) person that has kind of not necessarily like found the podcast, but that we've kind of connected and then like had had on. So that's really exciting. And I appreciate that you've listened to all of our other amazing guests. Yeah. So today, um, I actually would love to ask you questions all about your research. But to start, I think it'll be really fun to ask you a few questions about growing up in Northern Ireland and some of your experiences pursuing higher education in the UK, as in case any of our listeners don't know, because I go to UCSD, UC Santa Barbara, and we are based in um, the United States. So I was curious, uh, did you grow up in kind of a small town in Northern Ireland or was it a more largely populated metropolis area? Uh, Definitely not a metropolis, no. So I grew up in in Northern Ireland in a small town called Portaferry, which is just on the shores of Strangford Lock, um, which is about an hour south of Belfast. Very rural, um, lots of fishing and sailboats. It's very beautiful, Um, uh, in fact, uh, they shot parts of Game of Thrones around uh, near my house, so that's kind of cool. That's cool. Um, people usually laugh when I say I used to go to school on a boat, um, so it's you know that gives you a picture of sort of where I was living. Um, and yeah, uh, you know it's a great place to grow up. I, I moved from Northern Ireland over to London for university um, at eighteen, and then lived in London for sixteen wonderful years, and then. I've moved over here to Santa Barbara and I've been here now for, this is my fifth year teaching um, at the university. So, so yeah, I often get questions from students about the UK because it seems kind of exotic and strange to people I think, yeah. um, in California. Um, and uh, yeah, I can say a bit more about that if you like. Yeah, I think we'll get to it a bit more when we talk about your time at university, but mm-hmm. I really realized some of the even just slight cultural differences that we don't really realize when I was in a field school and I was rooming with people from the UK and Australia mm-hmm. and just different things, even like how they say uni, university, we say college typically, um, just different things. And it's really 
interesting to hear how things just slightly vary. Uh, so when you were growing up, did you have any exposure to uh, anthropology or behavioral ecology um, at a, kind of a younger age, or were those kind of subjects that you would come to study later in your education? Yeah, so this, you know, when I was at school, at high school, this is the, you know, mid to late 1990s, and especially then, and probably especially in somewhere like Northern Ireland, anthropology wasn't really something that, you, you know, you, you heard about. The nearest thing was probably, you know, people thinking about Indiana Jones or something like mm-hmm. that on television. Um, so I didn't really know what anthropology was, and I, I didn't really know what behavioral ecology was, which is, you know, um, really the, the, the theoretical approach we use to study animal behavior and extended humans, so ask all these questions about, you know, whether or not behavioral variation is adaptive and um, all that kind of thing. So we didn't have those kind of topics at high school. I, I did well in biology. I, I liked um, science. I had an interest in traveling to other places. I didn't really have the means at that point to travel very much. Um, so there was some seeds of it, but I think really I stumbled into a biology degree. Um, I think a lot of people, when they look back and they tell these stories, they sort of have this narrative of like, I always knew this is what I would do. I was not that person. I kind of fell into biology, happy accident. Um, maybe I liked my high school teacher and, and, and that was a good influence. You know, maybe yeah. they, they brought something, but um, I, I didn't have any early kind of origin story. It wasn't until my undergraduate that I started to take some classes in anthropology and started to shift my mind over in that direction. Um, I know that at other schools, even certain schools where you're locked into a program going in, in your undergraduate, yeah. you sometimes can't take those elective or fun classes. Yeah. Did you, you have the leniency to kind of explore and take some fun ones? Yeah, a little bit. So that is one of the differences between the, the UK and the US. So it's, and it was a surprise to me actually when I came here. So here, you know, if you're an undergraduate, you, you know, eventually declare your major or maybe it changes, maybe you have a minor, but you can usually take a class in almost any subject as, a, as an undergrad. Um, in the UK, it's much more curricular. So you usually choose your topic and then the first and second year, you're locked down to like study particular units, particular courses. And then a little bit of flexibility comes in at the end. So that, that, that's definitely a point of, of difference in experience. Um, and it, it differs much more than after the undergrad going into grad school. It's a very different system in the UK and the US. Um, so yeah, I, I, I did get access to some courses. There was one professor, her name's Ruth Mace. She's a very influential figure in my field. And she did some really good um, classes in behavioral ecology. And, it was a course that covered a lot of different topics, but she was super inspiring. And I kind of just discovered that topic at the right time because coming from a really small town, if you imagine, you know, living in a small, small place, getting about to school <laughs> and then going to London and being smack bang in the middle of this, you know, this is now a metropolis, this is a big cosmopolitan city. You, you, you get a bus in London and you hear 10 languages. It's a very different place. Um, I spent the first couple of years of my degree probably not studying very hard and actually just going out and enjoying London. And and that was a great education in itself. But somewhere in that middle point where my grades are probably not the best, I did discover these classes. And I think for a lot of people, especially those that go on to grad school, there's a point at which things just click. And you're like, oh, I can do this. I, I can think like this. I can 
I can, you feel empowered by it and you feel a sort of sense of identity with it. And yeah, some really amazing lectures by that professor. I ended up working with her for my PhD and, and a bit more after that. And it all kind of fell into place, but it did take a little bit of time. Yeah. Well, it's great that you got to work with her again. I think that's a really cool um, kind of loop back where when you get to work with the people that inspired you. I know um, Dr. Sarah McClure talked about that with Mindy Zeter, and that was really cool. Uh, had you visited uh, London before going to college there? I think I had one really disastrous school trip oh. where we went and, you know, looked at some sites. And I, I think, I don't even know what the purpose was. I just remember it being the absolute height of teenage awkwardness, you know. Um, There's so many rules. Everyone has to stay together. <laughs> and it's... <laughs> yeah, it was one of those kind of trips. I think I was fairly clueless about what I was getting into, but you know, having spent 16 years there, London is as much a home to me as, as my hometown. It's really, it was an amazing experience to live there. It's, it was really challenging to, to leave. Um, and I miss it a lot, but, um, you know, it meant a lot to me to, to have that experience. For sure. So um, as you were mentioning before, you received your BS in biological sciences at yeah. the University of College London and then um, MS in evolutionary psychology at the University of Liverpool. So taking you through your thought process when you mentioned that the biological sciences you kind of stumbled into, but especially what, what tipped you towards evolutionary psychology as a subject of focus in grad school? Yeah, so I should say actually that particular master's, the name's a bit of a red herring. So it was much more of a, a kind of a evolutionary anthropology, uh, behavioral ecology type master's despite the name. But uh, so for me, you know, studying as, as an undergrad, I discovered some courses towards the end, and then I, you know, I started to get motivated. My grades improved. I was really enjoying um, my studies, and I, I, I committed at some point to going to grad school. Um, in the UK, um, usually when you apply to grad school, it's a bit different, especially in the sciences. It's a more like writing a grant application because what you're applying for is the funding for the number of years required to get that, that PhD, which in the UK is about three to four years funding is what usually will be offered. You can do a master's before and it might increase your chances of getting onto the PhD program. Um, so what happened with me is I you know, decided this is what I want to do with my life. I was really into it. And I, and I wanted to work with that professor that I discovered in undergrad at, at UCL. And so I ended up applying three times to get into grad school with to work with her um, the first time um, my application was rejected, they didn't, they didn't fund it. Um, and then I managed to cobble together uh, enough resources to go to Liverpool and actually ended up staying with my uncle Pat there for a while um, and uh, living on his floor and then coming back down to London a bit and back and forth. But I managed to do it. And that, um, you know, allowed me to get a bit more experience and then reapply to grad school, um, which I did, and then I failed again. Um, uh, after perseverance, that, though perseverance. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I, I'm kind of glad that I failed because I, you know, it does take time to form a good research question, and I gained a lot from that master's. That master's was also taught by some really influential people, um, especially Louise Barrett, who's a wonderful scholar, and, and Robin Dunbar. Um, and that was also just a really cool time to do that, that master's. They had a textbook they had just written that year that I joined the program. So they were really on it and it was just an awesome experience. 
But yeah, I, I failed again, and I ended up then working as a, as a research assistant for a year um, at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, which is a bit of a mouthful. So hygiene is an old word for public health. So it's one of the, it's probably the major global public health university in the UK. And so I, I worked there for a year um, as a research assistant. I think I worked on a project on, on hand-washing behavior, which is now really relevant. I'm sure, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're part of a big team working on sanitation projects in different parts of the world. And that was a good experience. I learned a bit about data analysis and, and research design. And then I, I applied the third time to get into grad school. And I think, you know, by that point, they realized I wasn't really going to go away until they funded me. So they gave me the money and I was able to start, um, start my PhD. That's great. And so what was the subject of your dissertation and where were you collecting your data? So that's a good question, um, which um, might not be what you expect. So usually when people think of doing a PhD in anthropology, they, they assume that you're, you're both collecting data and you're probably doing it somewhere different. Um, for me, neither of those things were true. So I ended up um, pitching a project that was funded to actually collect data or at least, sorry, analyze data on what we know about British families and family structure and parental care and child development. And so we were really interested in questions um, about things like how does birth order or the number of children in a family influence how much time the parent spends with the child, um, uh, children's mental health, their physical development, their, their uh, success at school, and to put all these things together to ask these questions, but also to try to better understand why it is when societies get wealthier, they tend to have fewer children, which is a really puzzling trend um, for someone that takes an evolutionary perspective on behavior, because, you know, the assumption is that natural selection will design you to channel the resources that you accumulate into your fitness, into having children. So where did it all go wrong that when we get wealthy, we don't have as many kids? And so that was the kind of topic that we, we focused on. And it, it didn't require field work because we, um, this, is, this is a type of data that we actually already had, if you like. So there's some, uh, there's some really cool birth cohort studies. These are studies which collect data on the same individuals from birth over time. And there's one based in Bristol in the UK, and we used the first 10 years of their data collection. We collaborated and did some really nice studies um, on family structure and, and child well-being and uh, found some, some cool results. And that was, that was my beginning. I think one of the reasons why I didn't do field work, um, I wanted to. I, most of the stuff that I was reading and really inspired by was people going to different places and collecting data and and doing that more kind of classical anthropology that we think of. Mm -hmm. um, having not had experience traveling very much and maybe not having the confidence to pitch a project from scratch on one of those topics, I didn't have the connections to, to start it off. And those connections came later in, in my career, sort of towards the end of my PhD, getting to travel and collaborate on different projects and then building up a proposal for a postdoc. And so, after my PhD, I spent another six years as a postdoctoral researcher, um, and that's where the fieldwork started to come in. I am mm -hmm. so curious to ask you that study the, of the age cohorts from birth to, throughout their life. By chance, did they make that into a documentary? Because uh, in my sociology class in high school, they showed us a British and 
old, old British, like not documentary, but you know, put together of these kids and they interviewed them at like z like seven, 14, 21, 28, like in intervals of seven. And I remember they were British. Uh, this is one thing that the, the Brits do do quite well. There's a number of these different studies, okay. and there was uh, one that was uh, also associated with a number of documentary films. Yeah. I think that's what you're thinking of. I think uh, I'm struggling to remember the name of the cohort, but um, the one that I used was a little bit different. So this was about 15,000 families um, in Bristol in the UK and uh, born in 1991. So they were, the time I was studying um, or collaborating with them, it was, they were only getting towards 20 at that point. Mm -hmm. And they, they've made a couple of films about that cohort yeah. too, but I don't think it's the one that you probably, at the time I was quite envious of some of my PhD cohort that were off traveling to different countries and mm -hmm. doing projects that seemed much sexier and more exciting. Mm -hmm. But for me, the fieldwork was actually getting the data, you know, on week two of my PhD and then learning the methodology to analyze it and, and spending a lot of time thinking, you know, about the, the theoretical orientation of my project and what I was trying to achieve. And I try to replicate that now with my own students is to sort of get them to focus on some existing data and learning about the research project or, or process before you go and collect data, especially if you're working with maybe vulnerable groups that are maybe even overstudied and don't need to have another survey from a foreign researcher. Um, you know, it's, it's important to actually build some respect into the process before you go and start, you know, collecting data just because it sounds fun. I think that's a great suggestion for people that are starting out, especially like in uh, graduate research. Um, so since your educational background was uh, pretty much exclusively in the UK, when you joined the faculty at UCSD as an assistant professor in 2016, were there any major differences you noticed between an American institution like UCSD and colleges in the UK? Yeah, there are so many differences. So, um, you know, just physically, the campus is very different. UCSD is a very classic kind of American style campus where it's almost like it's its own town. Um, it's fully functioning, it's got everything you need. Um, you know, that we don't have quite so many universities with that kind of campus style um, set up. Things like frat houses and seeing the red cups and beer pong and toga parties and stuff like that really crack me up that it's, it's, like, it's like a movie version of, of college or university. Um, so just those things are sort of funny and amusing, but there are differences, especially in grad school. Like I was saying in the UK, it's a shorter period for grad school, um, but we have more of a culture of breaking things into pieces. So typically you might do a master's for maybe one year, then do a PhD, um, and then often you would do a postdoc position before you sort of graduate into a faculty post. Whereas in the US, at least the classic model is coming in and doing your PhD, maybe taking seven, eight or longer years. I think yeah. one statistic is that, you know, the average American PhDs takes longer or lasts longer than the average American marriage. So, you know, it's a big commitment. It's a bit longer. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and you don't have, it's changing here, but there's not quite the same postdoc culture. And so there's this expectation that you will learn everything across this period, and then you will graduate and be fully fledged and able to go teach and do independent research. And that's a, that's a kind of great system if everything goes to plan. 
Yeah. But it's a really bad system if it doesn't. And there's some things I find quite frustrating. And I, I speak here as the, the graduate advisor for our department. So um, these are things that I think about a lot. But, you know, for example, if a student maybe decides they want to go to grad school, but then after a year or two, they're like, this is not really for me. I, I, I just want to get the master's component. And then I want to, you know, take a break and think what I want to do with my life. Because we set it up in a way, or most programs are set up in a way that, that the master's slowly shifts into the PhD, okay. they're often spoken about as if they dropped out of grad school. And I don't think that's appropriate language. It's, it's, it's better, actually, I think, to break things into pieces and to have one set of qualifications, which are wonderful in their own right, and then decide if you want to go further. Um, there are also differences with uh, the... Uh, the ways in which graduate student labor is is built into grad school. So uh, grad students do a lot of teaching. The best way to learn is to teach. That is true, but it can be quite demanding. Whereas in the UK, more typically, it's very competitive to get a post, get a position. But once you're in, you are funded to do your research from day one and you do bits and pieces of, of teaching, but not quite as much. So you know, there's, there's pros and cons to those models. On the one hand, when I was interviewing for, for jobs in America initially, I always would find myself feeling really not very competitive compared to, to some Americans that have gone through grad school here because they maybe had all this teaching experience and had done all these different things that I hadn't done yet. Um, but on the other hand, you know, like I said, it, it, it's, it's not the kindest system and it, it doesn't lead to as much flexibility. And I think the idea that at you know, 21 or 24 or 25, you would make a decision about what to do with the next, next eight years of your life and, and is, is a bit um, sort of strange to me, but yeah, you know, I agree. pros and cons. Definitely. Um, so has all of that kind of prompted you to adapt your teaching or mentoring style since you've been here? I know you, you've probably learned a lot since you've been here just in general about the whole process of PhD and being a grad student and being an advisor it's, it's a it's a it's a complex system it's a very complex system I think I'm still learning about it yeah. um I don't think I've changed too much so I've, I've had four grad students in total now uh, and I'll speak mostly about those I guess so I two have, have graduated or just graduated and, and then two that are right at the start of their program and I don't think I've changed my set of approach. I've always had the same kind of perspective on mentoring. Um, I think going from my own experience, I really pushed the, the early stage of getting yourself theoretically orientated and really deciding what your objectives are, you know, really walking before you can run and, and then getting into it. But, it. but in general, you know, Mentoring, especially that relationship between a professor and a grad student, it's quite an intimate one. You work together very closely. And, um, you know, my general rules are just, you know, work with good people and, and, and be a good person and be kind with your time. And I start off with very high expectations and, and let students rise to the occasion. And so far, they always have. And um, it's probably the best part of my job. Um, two students that I have now are... are a lot of fun to work with and we're they're developing projects that quite frankly are well beyond what I ever did at that stage so it's, it's super fun to work with them more generally uh on campus with undergrads and everything else not much adjustment um just 
it's it's a fun part of the job. We've got some really cool students. American students are a little bit different than the UK students. They're a little strange in some ways to yeah. me. They're often extremely confident compared to British students mm -hmm. um, who, who, you know, the, the scariest thing for most British students is public speaking. I'm sometimes blown away by students that will come to the front of the class and basically teach better than I would. Um, but you know, most of it is just is just good fun, and it's it's enjoyable to to you know, it's it's a great thing to move at a later part of your life. Not that I'm that old; I'm I'm 38. <laughs> but to to move, you know, I moved here five years ago, yeah. and to be dropped into a different culture is actually really stimulating and exciting, and it you know, it's a fun thing. Probably prompted you to learn new things about yourself as well, and For I sure. think your mentoring style I think all of that is really really great mottos to live by you know be kind with your time work with good people I think that's important and you know something we're, we're going to talk about later is collaboration and collaboration I think is key to the best work so yeah. I agree don't, don't um, be an asshole is always a good yeah <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> Uh, so, as we mentioned, you're an assistant professor here at UC Santa Barbara, and your research and teaching focus on two main themes, evolutionary approaches to human behavioral diversity and anthropological contributions to global health. So I would love to learn more about the research that you are doing and um, including your work on child marriage and other topics relating to family life. Sure, I'll try to navigate through that. Um, one I have quick, some breakdown questions too, yeah. so I, I don't need to just, you don't need to explain everything, but maybe give us a little in-depth sneak peek. Okay, no worries, we can break it up. I'll, yeah. I'll correct you slightly, it's okay. not a big deal to me, but it's, it's so, as of this year, I'm now associate professor because I just got tenure, so. Congratulations, you know, that, no, that's a very, a, that's a very notable thing to correct. <laughs> yes. It's great to have a little bit of permanence, especially in these unstable times. Um, yeah, so my research has two main themes, um, and so going really from my PhD research onwards, I've always focused on the family as a unit of analysis, and the family is really interesting, um, especially um, from an evolutionary anthropological perspective, because it's a key side of cooperation, you know, you're cooperating with your relatives that share your genes, but it's also a key side of conflict because you're competing over shared resources. And, you know, there's a lot of really cool theory and ideas about how these different, you know, sides of the same coin of cooperation and conflict will play out. And I've worked on things like family size, so the demographic transition, the fall in fertility rates, why it is that we start to think that smaller families are the way to go. I've also done a lot of work more recently on questions of marriage. And so one of those topics is child marriage. Another topic is, is polygynous marriage. So that's when you know, a, a man is permitted to have multiple wives. And so if we take child marriage for, uh, to begin with, child marriage is a really interesting topic for an anthropologist. So if I, if I sort of asked you or asked your listeners to imagine a child bride or think about child marriage for a second and think about what assumptions you have, you would probably be imagining um, a, a literal child. So you'd be imagining someone who's maybe like 12, 13 years old, married to someone much older. Um, you're probably assuming that, that that girl had no choice in the matter and that it's, it's inherently a terrible, awful, awful thing. So, you know, those are all fine assumptions, but what we need to do is have a kind of reality-grounded view of what's happening. 
So child marriage, it's has a particular meaning in global health. It, uh, it's defined as any marriage under the age of 18. Um, so it's based on a legal category of a child rather than kind of you know, what you would usually use the term for. It's a legal child. Most child brides, men, are usually in their late teens. They're 16 and 17. And while it's you know, definitely the case that it's maybe hard to have a fully informed choice at that age, there still is a level of agency that can that is emerging at that point. So we're into kind of sticky, you know, gray areas a little bit. Um, what we do on the topic of child marriage is to really try to address what's driving this behavior. It's extremely common in many parts around the world. It was historically common everywhere, um, even in America. You know, that was that was the norm to marry very young, especially if you're a woman or a girl. Um, but the question is, you know, what's what's driving that behavior? If it's if it is very harmful, and 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 certainly the the international development sector, those that work in global health, they've kind of you know uh, coalesced around this category of, of child marriage and are pushing this very strong approach now that we need to raise the the minimum age of marriage internationally, and that will have unquestionable and fully transformative effects on women's empowerment. Um, so this is a, this is a very well-intentioned agenda, and it, and there's very good reasons to think marrying early can be problematic, and that's not in doubt. But we still have this category that's very inflexible that we need to kind of examine. So there's this assumption: if you marry under 18, it's inherently harmful, and if, if you're over 18, it's probably not a public health concern. Let's mm -hmm. carry on as usual. And so a lot of our research is sort of being a bit critical of this approach because it can center this category of child bride without really focusing instead on the wider context. What are the real risks to well-being for young women? So what we find in Tanzania, this is a context where about 30% of, of women would marry under, um, under 18, um, is, you know, on the ground, the behavior is not quite as it often would appear in a lot of the global health campaigns and materials. So most of the marriages occur at 17 or 16. Um, there's considerable agency among young women. They're often already sexually active, um, often have children before marriage as well. Um, sometimes they're marrying um, against parental consent. In fact, parents in some focus groups we've done, they've talked about how the youth of today are really sexualized and they want to marry too early. And so it's not, it's not driven by coercion from parents, at least in, in the study populations that we work with in Tanzania. Um, and so, you know, that's important. We also find that um, if you look at measures of well-being, interestingly, um, age of marriage is not very predictive of well-being. So what that tells you is that it's not so much if you marry, you know, at seven, it doesn't mean that if you marry at 17, all your problems are going to go away. And if you marry at 18, yeah. sorry, it, marry at 17, it's yeah. bad. If you marry at 18, it, it's, it's, it's fine. That, that, that threshold is not itself very meaningful. And so we're trying to better understand this process or what's happening. And key to that, I think, is realizing that childhood is not necessarily a sanctuary in all places. And so the idea if you're unmarried doesn't mean you're buffered from all forms of risk and vulnerability. Yeah. Um, and so we're trying to better understand this, what, what's going on here. And really early marriage is often seen in this context as, as, as a desirable almost opportunity for young women. 
within the confines of a very patriarchal culture. And so parents want the best for their children. They're not, they're not selling their daughters off into marriage. They're, they're trying to strategically help them. And, and, and within that, that, that wider patriarchal society. And you know, even some of our work shows that um, in terms of autonomy measures, so how much agency a woman has, uh, a young married woman often has more agency than an unmarried woman living at home and maybe doing a lot of domestic labor and not being in control of her own time. And so what all this sort of says to us is that there are real incentives to marry early and we shouldn't trivialize them and we should understand them better because that can lead us to different kinds of policy. Um, rather than just trying to make child marriage illegal, maybe we can think more broadly about the kind of dangers and, and vulnerabilities of, of female adolescence because if we just change the age of marriage and nothing else, that doesn't change the position of women in society and it may even um, have some negative unintended consequences. All of that was very, I just sat and I was like, yes, I agree with everything <laughs> and, I, and I understand it. I think it's very fascinating looking at something like that in the context and then evaluating, you know, the culture that surrounds it rather than just like you said, putting a label on child marriage is bad, child marriage should be illegal really what does it mean especially in a place like Tanzania where we're not talking about um you know the western super modernized world we're talking about people I'm assuming you're working in lower class communities that don't probably don't have um correct me if I'm wrong I don't what how long have you been working in Tanzania and what is it like in the area where you work just let's clarify that probably first yeah sure so I've worked in Tanzania now for maybe um maybe it's around six years or longer. Um, and the area that I work is in, it's the area is called Mwanza and it's just uh, south of Lake Victoria, right at the um, top of Tanzania, Northwest Tanzania. And um, we work um, in collaboration with the, the National Institute for Medical Research there, which carried out a lot of different studies. Historically, they've mainly focused on questions to do with HIV and malaria. They haven't done quite as much social science research. So we've been working with there, you know, we're talking about quite rural but urbanizing communities um, and uh, relatively low status for women. There's a bit of polygyny, um, family structures kind of dispersed, there's a lot of fostering for children, which is something else we've, we've looked at in our research. Um, so, you know, going sort of circling back to what you were asking about um, or what you were, you were reiterating or reinforcing about child marriage, it's, it's a legal category which makes a lot of sense within a context like the US mm -hmm. um, where, you know, there, you can use your legal rights to protect you. In a, in a rural, you know, urbanizing context in, in um, Tanzania and more broadly many other places, those legal categories aren't really quite so meaningful because you cannot enforce your rights, even if they're written in the book. So mm -hmm. it's a bit different. It's also important. Another part of our work is uh, we've been trying to sort of um, be a bit more critical of uh, the international perspective or international development perspective on child marriage because uh, it's very hypocritical, in fact. So child marriage, marrying under 18, um, we don't even like the term child marriage, I should say. We try to say underage marriage or minor marriage because that's a bit more uh, clear what we're talking about. But underage marriage, under 18 marriage, 
that's actually legal in the large majority of American states with, with parental consent and, and approval from a judge. And, and the reason for that is, uh, is predominantly, I, I believe, because of um, kind of this idea that if, well, maybe if you're, you have a child or something like that, then you should be able to marry the dad or, or regardless of if you want to, you should, because that's what some people think a family is, right? Yeah. And so to have on the one hand, these domestic politics and ideas about marriage, which are very flexible and actually say, oh no, it's not that bad in some cases, whether or not you agree with that stance or not, you know, it's very hypocritical to have that stance but then declare it as a human rights abuse in every other country. And so that, that's something that is, is challenging um, for me to, to get my head around it. Just a couple of days ago, we were speaking with an organization here called Unchained at Last, and they, they campaigned to change the age of marriage laws in the US. And, and we share some similar perspectives on this hypocrisy. Um, one of the issues is that most of the American public are actually shocked to find out you can marry under 18. Um, I was just shocked. I didn't know that. Yeah. So th there's different lenses to this. And it's, it's, it's been a really interesting topic to work on as an anthropologist and has kind of reinforced in me that the importance of anthropology because mm -hmm. we can often act as be somewhat objective about some of these questions rather than, you know, imagine you work in, in global health or international development. Frankly, in those fields, you're not always taught to be critical of the, the, you know, the global goals and, and agenda that, that we're trying to, to, to work with. Instead, you're, you're pursuing this, this agenda and you, and, and you don't always have a, much of a knowledge about cultural diversity and some of the dangers of you know, an ethnocentric approach. Uh, the difficulty that we have is that we don't want to sound like we're you know, apologizing for child marriage or saying it's a good thing. Uh, it's very clear that marrying later is usually a good thing for women. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the point is we have to look at people's decisions within a context and understand that it's not, it's, it would be naive to think that it only ever occurs because, you know, a daughter is sold off into marriage or she's forced against her will. In, in, in fact, it's often the opposite, that parents and the daughter think it's the most strategic choice in that context. And, to say one last thing about that, one reason why I'm really passionate about correcting those misconceptions is, you know, right now in Sub-Saharan Africa, close to 40% of, of girls will marry under 18, or that's, that's the statistic that we currently have to work with. It's a crude estimate. If I, if I say to you 40% of African girls are child brides, and your concept of child marriage is a 12-year-old girl marrying a really old man and being sold off into marriage in this very aggressive, coercive way, um, you will leave that conversation thinking, oh my God, what is going on in Africa? Like, what kind of culture do they have? Mm -hmm. um, the parents don't even care about their children. And that, you know, when we have all kinds of biases, when we, we look at you know, lower income populations, and what that does is it puts the, you know, you're putting the conversation there on just kind of moral issues and saying, oh, that's disgusting. And a lot of child and child marriage campaign materials, they use images of little girls getting married to old men to get your, to get your money, you know, to get you involved in this initiative. And that's very successful. But the flip side of it is it leads to this kind of disdain of, of some of these, these cultures and, and, and customs, which is, is, 
not the best thing. It's not good to have those viewpoints when they're inaccurate and, and, and they're really unsympathetic to people's lives. And so that's kind of where I think, you know, anthropology can have a real, a real role to play. And, and it's, it's, it's a good thing to have anthropologists to be part of that conversation. I completely agree. I think understanding it in the context that it's happening, understanding how it's affecting the people involved rather than just putting a big label over the whole thing is very important. Um, so I am really curious to hear, you know, you've spent a lot of time in Tanzania, what, what that's been like um, and what some of your favorite things are about working there, experiences that you've had. I'm sure it's been a really special experience. Yeah, it's a great place to work. It's a huge privilege to get to work there. You know, I give you some clues at the beginning of our conversation that I, you know, I hadn't traveled when I was young. Um, I never in a million years have thought I'd be traveling to somewhere like Tanzania on a regular basis um, now. So it's, it's just, I, I always feel very privileged about it. It's a great experience. It's a beautiful country, both in terms of the natural environment. You know, you've got Serengeti, you've got Zanzibar, all of those things. Are in reach. Um, the people are wonderful, but I guess for me, um, what's been enjoyable is just the um, the experiences of fieldwork and working with um, other Tanzanian scientists and researchers um, and our field team. Uh, two summers ago, which was the last time we were able to get out there, with you know everything happening with COVID right now, um, we did a, a project uh, which you know, we had a field team of about twenty staff and. I had my grad students uh, with me, uh, another uh, research assistant from, uh, from the US. Uh, my husband came too. Um, and this was, you know, every day, two or three Land Rovers of a lot of us cramming in together and joking and laughing in between um, studies and, you know, in between surveys. And it was a great learning experience and just a lot of fun. And it's those little moments that really mm -hmm. mean something to me rather than, you know, a big story about Tanzania as a nation. It's just, the little interactions and the, and the fun time during field work. Definitely. Have you enjoyed getting to try some new foods there? So I think this would be a great opportunity to discuss um, something that I know you're very passionate about, which is equitable collaboration in cross-cultural research. So could you explain why this, um, why equitable collaboration is so imperative in decolonizing anthropological and other areas of social science research? Absolutely. I'll, I'll do my best. Again, it's a tough, it's a tough question, but mm -hmm. so this is definitely something I'm passionate about and something that I'm trying to, you know, um, be more active and improving on myself. Um, but we kind of have this situation where, you know, being an academic, doing research is an extremely competitive job. Um, we are always trying to publish papers and get grants. And to get another grant, you've got to publish another paper. And to get tenure, you've got to do more things. Um, there's not that many positions, just a lot of competition for the resources that we do have. One of the unfortunate products of that is that it's built an incentive structure where you know, we're focused a lot on those metrics of publishing and getting grant money. Um, we exist within institutions that are guarding their own financial interests rather than necessarily being equitable in how they share research funding. Yes. And, um, you know, and then on top of that, I feel like anthropology where we do, you know, work a lot with relatively vulnerable populations, often overseas in different countries. Um, we're doing that research while working with an institution or, or set of institutions that have ethical re review boards and panels for, you know, human subjects research 
which aren't always geared towards thinking about some of the issues that come up when you do research at a more global level and you're working with other countries that maybe don't even necessarily have their own ethical review boards. So what that means is we have this kind of broad structure of incentives and institutions which doesn't reward or prioritize doing ethical field work. Um, and that's something that is improving. And there's a lot of people that are really active in conversations about improving um, the nature of research. But I think for me, you know, looking broadly at the question, what do we want to achieve in anthropology or other fields that are doing cross-cultural social science or research? In the long term, we, it should not be the case that only high-income countries are leading that research or that they are the ones that hold all the funding and research capacity. So while there might be understandable reasons that, you know, right now there's inequalities and maybe people are doing field research in parts of the world where they're not collaborating with a local university or they're not actively, you know, increasing research capacity locally because maybe there aren't the resources there or the infrastructure to plug into. In the long term, we're doing things wrong if we're not actively um, building capacity with our own research and making personal decisions about how we use our time and our resources. So, you know, to put a, a comparison, um, global health, which is a field that I also work in, they've, to me, they've woken up much more to some of these inequities than we have. So it's, it's actually quite common now for global health journals to say, oh, if you've collected data in another country, um, you need to tell us why there is no author from that country on this paper, because it's a complete fantasy if you want us to believe that you just went there and did everything without any local help. Even if all the money came from a high-income country, you have erased someone by not crediting, you know, another yeah. author in this process. And there, you know, there are issues that come up. There, you know, there's conflicts of interests and, and differences in expertise that can make co-authorship and collaboration difficult. Um, you know, across countries with different disciplinary foci, but it's something that we need to do better on. And I personally am very committed in my current and future research to working with Tanzanian researchers, which sometimes means um, being more flexible in the questions that I address and, and the things that I prioritize. Um, so it's more of a shared agenda. Uh, so, you know, I think right now, what we need to do as a field is own up to a lot of these issues, be frank about the inequities that do exist. And then, you know, something that I never experienced as a student, you know, I'm not going to blame anybody, but I never had a lot of conversations like this with professors, you know, how can I make sure my research is ethical? Mm -hmm. If I want to work in, you know, any country you want to name, you know, Uganda, or I want to work in, you know, um, Cameroon or whatever, I shouldn't just be like, oh, I want to go there. I'm going to rock up and I'm going to develop my own study site. You should be thinking what universities exist there because mm -hmm. they do exist. Um, what experts already are there that I can work with? And when I do work there, how am I going to do work that is um, not extractive? You know, it's actually um, in some way, you know, uh, contributing something or at least being very respectful of, of what you're doing and being honest about what you're doing. I think a lot of scholars right now are very focused on issues of, of community participation and so trying to actually engage with effectively your study subjects that the very community you're working with. 
for me, it's more of an agenda right now or more of a priority to think about the larger questions of research infrastructure. So what are the research centers and academics and universities that maybe there should be stronger links with, both in terms of collaboration and intellectual exchange, and then in terms of funding. So if I'm doing, if I get a research grant to work in Tanzania and my institution wants to take 50% right away as overheads um, and, and, and restricts me from providing overheads to a collaborating institution in another country, that's something that needs to change. That's not healthy. So Definitely. and I think ethic, ethical issues are brought up so often, but issues of equi equitable collaboration need to be brought up as part of that, you know, ethics and anthropology and the ethics we have when we're in another country as academics and researchers. I think that is just as important and is something, you know, that it's great that we get to publicize it here, but that should be the most first thing in the anthropology textbook on day one in Anth 101. You know what I mean? It's, it's a big yeah, part. And many ways, sometimes it is. Sometimes it's already there. You know, we're not starting from scratch. It is part mm -hmm. of the conversation, but it's still an area where there's a lot of improvement and, you know, needed. You know, we can spend more time thinking about those issues. And, and this year, you know, there's been so much um, focus on questions of racism. Mm -hmm. which has been, you know, a wonderful way to renew these efforts in, in a sense and focus on decolonizing research. Part of that conversation, I think, needs to, to um, sometimes look to other fields. And I think actually global health, although it's a field that anthropologists often like to criticize um, because they see it as more of a kind of establishment, you know, and they don't like some of the ideas that might be prevalent in, in international development studies. But um, thinking about these questions of building research capacity and 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 who's doing the research um is is, is fundamental yeah so the last thing i was hoping to discuss with you was is completely on a different train of thought <laughs> but just as equally important when we're talking about um diversity in the field is, you know, some of the pros and cons of queer visibility since you do work in a country where um, it is illegal and, um, but you also teach, you know, here at a very liberal and accepting university in California where it would be completely fine to identify as a gay man. Yeah, no, thanks for asking that question. And I've appreciated in your, your podcast, you kind of had this thread of diversity issues, which is really nice. Um, so yeah, what can I say about that? Well, I think for me, you know, I've talked a lot about how wonderful it was to, to grow up in Northern Ireland, um, but also at that time in the 90s, it was a very homophobic culture, and I definitely paid a cost of, of that, you know, growing up, it, it was it was difficult. And I didn't have a lot of role models, and I would have appreciated having more, you know, um, even going into university, undergrad and graduate studies, mm -hmm. having out professors would have been um, something that would have, you know, made me feel a bit more like I belonged and it's yeah. just something that, that maybe um, I could do as well. And, um, you know, I, I don't think I ever really suffered very much in terms of, you know, homophobia beyond sort of teenage years um, of, you know, absorbing a lot of homophobic kind of, you know, attitudes and things. But, you uh, you know, going forward, it's, 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 it absolutely is a joy for me to teach and be, you know, I don't have a, uh, I don't wave a rainbow flag every time I come into the classroom, but if it's mm -hmm. casually dropped into the conversation, yeah. um, 
it's a joy for me that no one really gives a shit and um uh to work with people that don't even care about it and you know my grad students are very close friends with my husband and all those kind of things are just lovely and they wouldn't i wouldn't have been able to imagine them you know growing up in the 90s um where i was anyway and so you know i can see the benefits of just those obvious benefits to, to having more visibility that's that's mm -hmm. not in, not in doubt but it is a bit more of a complicated issue um working somewhere like tanzania where it is illegal and you know, for me working there, I never really have a fear that I'm going to get locked up or something like that and, and commit a legal event, a, a offense. I'm not going to get in trouble with the law for being gay there. It's not, it's not likely to happen to me as, as a foreigner, but there is a concern that it would have negative impacts on my uh, relationships with other researchers um, and also with the community that I work in. Um, and so, you know, I'm very used to getting lots of comments about why I'm not married. I think everyone's convinced I'm a complete loser because I haven't got kids and, you know, I'm not, I am married, but I'm Yes, married, but not, not in there, yeah. Um, and I've considered inventing a wife and things like that just to sort of stop the conversation. But, you know, I, I, I fumbled my way through it and the people that I work with, I think it just, you know, they've decided I'm a, I'm a you know, a dead end because I'm not going to ask questions about it <laughs> But there are concerns and I certainly, had you know to give you an example um ucsb has something called the outlist where they actually approach faculty and students and say if you want you can put your name here so that um if there's any queer students that would feel more comfortable having a conversation or working with another queer person they can see that you're there and it shows that visibility and i've had some back and forth with with that initiative because I don't, I personally don't feel comfortable having my sexuality, you know, explicitly labeled in my Twitter feed or, or yeah. on my Twitter account or my web page because those are the kind of things that are publicly accessible and, and could be, frankly, um, you know, create problems for me. Um, saying all that, I also don't really want to take out a violin about this issue and, you know, say, poor me, because, you know, the bigger concern for me is actually is actually gay rights um, in Tanzania and many parts of the world where it is a legal offense or even um, associated with the death penalty or whatever else and and those are you know I don't I don't want to be a poor me working in Tanzania where I have to take questions about having you know a wife rather than a husband um, when you know my gay brothers and sisters in in Tanzania are um, in a difficult spot right now and these are really challenging questions so you know these are these are difficult issues yeah. i noticed you said queer at the beginning and i said i always feel a bit uneasy with that label i understand that it has a solidarity sort of aspect mm -hmm. to it but when i'm in a position where i'm talking about you know my experience i never want to talk like about the queer experience because i can talk about the gay experience that yes. <laughs> i have no experience of being non-binary or trans or lesbian so um I always feel a little uneasy with that, that term. I think yeah. it's a bit more commonly used in the US than in the UK. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. Um, and thank you again for listening. It's a pleasure to have a listener as a guest now. I think it's very exciting. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I, I really enjoyed the conversation and the podcast is amazing. And I think it's gonna lead to great things for you. So thanks very much. <laughs>